Happy Easter. Turn to your neighbor and say, Happy Easter. I don't know if you've done that yet. It's a great morning. What a beautiful day. Uh, what a beautiful name we get to celebrate this morning. Amen? Amen. If you don't know who I am, my name is Pastor Derek Fry, and uh, I'm the lead pastor at Connect here, or I like to say the lead servant. And uh, we, we kind of serve in an upside-down kingdom, you know, where the top of the food chain is the bottom. <laughs> and so we lead from the front in serving. So I'm here to just serve you guys, and this is one of the ways that I do that is, uh, you know, as a communicator, and it's an honor to do so. Uh, I'd like to take a moment, though, not just welcome you, but I'd like to welcome all our online and cable viewers. Can you join me as we give them a big hand for being with us? I believe the next service will be live, and so we'll, be, uh, we'll have some people online watching us as well uh, live. But uh, I just want to thank you for being here. If you're new to Connect and you've never been here before, um, I imagine, you know, depending on your experience, this could be kind of very different. Um, and and it could, hopefully it's a good difference. You know, I, I actually grew up uh, in the church, uh, but I, I, we came from a very different background. My father is a converted atheist, and so we, uh, we didn't really see faith, uh, the, you know, as kind of the norm. And um, in fact, you know, Christianity and other religions were, through the lens of my father, were seen as a crutch, just like something people needed to lean on to get through life because they weren't strong enough. And uh, as a result of uh, some difficult circumstances in life, uh, my father, our family, we came to faith. And we realized that we needed uh, God in our life, and uh, he's been a part of our life ever since. But because of that kind of upbringing, we have a non-traditional approach to church. And, and, and I don't want you to misinterpret it. So if you're new, I want to just do something that makes you relax just a little bit. And that is, we believe the message of the scriptures are timeless, uh, they are sacred, but we believe the methods are not. And so one of the reasons people decide not to come to church is not because of uh, the message. Typically, it's because of the methods. It's just simply that, you know, uh, the people aren't friendly. Uh, you know, they do a horrible job with children. You know, uh, you know they, they're always after your money. Uh, that's a big one. Uh, you know, the, 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 the music is irrelevant. And the number one reason people don't come to church is because the sermons are boring. So all the pressure's on me right now. <laughs> Everybody extend your hands toward me and pray. <laughs> so, so I just want you to know, we, we're trying to address the reasons people don't go. And they're always methodological. They're not necessarily theological. But we, I want you to know, you're going to receive something that will help you in your faith. The foundation of your faith uh, is, you know, built on an event that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The Bible actually says that the preaching is, that comes from a place like this, the pulpit, is useless if it wasn't for the resurrection. Isn't that crazy? 1 Corinthians 15. So I just want to encourage you with that. We're going to get into the word in, in just a second. But I'm going to start with just a little joke because some of you don't know me. Usually I am the joke. Uh, and so I'm going to start with a little joke. And I'm going to merge kind of what some people think Easter's all about and some people know Easter's all about. And, and this, this is a story about a guy. He owned a Rottweiler, like one of these ferocious kind of dogs. And he, the dog had to be fenced in. It was a beautiful dog, but it had to be fenced in. And on the other side of this fence was another guy. He didn't have a dog. He had a bunny rabbit. And so the bunny rabbit would bounce around every day all through the yard just tormenting this ferocious dog. And the dog would run up to the fence. I'm going to get you and I'm going to eat you for breakfast. You're mine. The day will come. You know, all that kind of stuff. And I'm putting words in a dog's mouth, but I'm pretty sure dogs do talk. Um, mine does. And so my dog's named Hunter, and he's about this big. And he should be called Hunted. And... Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> like birds literally threaten his life from the air. It's not even, I'm not even kidding. He's got like a, anyway, it, it's recent. Um, so, so this dog is going up to this fence every day. And anyway, one day, the, this ferocious Rottweiler shows up uh, in, in his house. The owner's like, oh my gosh, what have you done? And the bunny rabbit is dead in his mouth. I know, everybody calm down. It's a story. And so he's like, I got him, I got him, I got him. And so like the owner's freaking, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? My neighbor's going to freak out. And so he takes the bunny rabbit outside and he gets a garden hose and he, and he starts spraying off all the, it's a white bunny rabbit, like pure white. So he starts getting all the blood off the, the poor little bunny rabbit and cleans it all up. Then he takes him inside up into the bathroom and he gets a hair blower, H-A-R-E, just seeing if you're with me, just seeing if you're with me. Blow dries the white bunny rabbit, gets it all poofy and pretty and everything. And he's like, I got an idea. He takes the bunny rabbit over the fence into the neighbor's yard, puts him inside the cage where the bunny rabbit lives, props him up nice and pretty, and then tiptoes away. And so about three hours later, the owner of the bunny rabbit comes home, and you hear a blood-curdling scream. Oh, my gosh. Ah, ah. And the neighbor of the Rottweiler tiptoes over like, what, what, what happened? Like playing dumb. And the guy says, Mama, 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 my, my rabbit, he died three days ago, and he's come back to life. <laughs> you see how I did that? You see how I did that? Two things come together. So depending on your theology, this service is over. Have a great Sunday. You know what I mean? <laughs> Turn your neighbor say, he's good, he's good. Okay. So we're in a series, and, and if you're new to Connect, we do things kind of like systemically, like a little bit at a time. We don't do it all at once. And so the series is called God Man. You saw the kind of the promo there. And basically what we're saying is that, that, that divinity met with humanity. It's amazing when you think about it, that like God in heaven would come to earth to do what? And that's really what the whole Bible is about. There's this mission, this message where Jesus was trying to restore relationship between God and man. And so the first message we talked about, God came uh, in the flesh. Jesus, what, what, in the beginning, the Bible says he was the word, and the word became flesh and dwelt among men. John 1 tells us this. And so here he is with us, and, and he was a human. And I don't think everybody realized that, but Jesus was a human. For 33 and a half years, he was one of us. And so we talked about a principle in week one that, that Jesus identifies with us at all points. Hebrews 4.15 tells us this. Yet he never crossed the line. He never sinned. And so whatever you're going through, Jesus understands. That was week one. I'm telling you, everything that you're experiencing in life that's difficult or problematic or trial or challenge, Jesus understands. So that's week one. I'd love for you to hear that message. Go back online and listen to that. And then week two, we talked about Jesus the Lamb. It's a really weird description for a person, but he was the Lamb of God who, who took away the sins of the entire world. He became a sacrifice for sin. And there's something inside of us that knows that when we cross the line, there's, there's, there's the need to make recompense. When you get in a fight with somebody, in order to be restored to them, you know you have to kind of try to, you want to do something to try to bring that relationship back to where it was. We all know that innately. And so Jesus restored fellowship between God and man for the, for the sins of humanity through the Lamb of God. And we talked about that last week. But today, we're going to talk about uh, another aspect of Jesus, Jesus the Son. Everybody say, Jesus the Son. And when I was thinking about Easter, uh, I was, first of all, scared to death because I, I get nervous on Easter, if I'm being honest with you. I've been speaking for 20-something years. 
And, uh, but Easter's tough because you can't, how do you say the same thing, you know, over and over and over again and make it fresh? And, and I started to pray, which is a good idea for a pastor. You should pray once in a while. And so I was praying, or prinking as I like to say, praying and thinking at the same time. We call that prinking. And I was prinking, and all of a sudden I just get this, this thought that Jesus was someone's son. He was someone's son. Like, I didn't think about that before. It hit me like a tsunami. Like, Jesus was someone's son. Wow, like, that's crazy. And I was trying to, like, connect what the relationship must have been like. And my brain's different, as you already can tell. And when I was younger, I used to watch this show. And I'm going to date myself a little bit, but some of you are going to remember this show. I used to watch this show, The Courtship of Mr. Eddie's Father. Has anybody ever seen that? People, let me tell you about my best friend. He's my one boy, cuddly toy, my up and down, my pride and joy. And, and people, let me tell you, it's so much fun, whether we're talking man to man or whether we're talking son to son, because he's my best friend. Anybody? No? Yes? I'm all by myself. There's about 10 of us in here. It's awesome. Then he goes into the lot up. Da -da -da -da. All right, I'll stop. So one aspect of this show that I totally loved was this charming boy who was trying always to set up his father, who was widowed. He, he was without a wife, and so that was always funny to see how he's trying to do that. But next to the theme song, the most attractive part of the show was the relationship between Eddie and his father, Tom. And I'd watch the show as a young man. I'd be like, oh, what a great relationship they had. It's so awesome. And look at how they spent time together, and they're walking on the beach, and they're doing stuff, and they're hanging out, and all that kind of stuff. It was so attractive to see this relationship between a father and a son. And I thought, you know what? The father in heaven had a relationship like that with his son. You know, over the eons and eons of time, before we were even here, the father and son were together in relationship with one another. And their relationship was perfect because it was in heaven. And, and even though our relationship with God might be, uh, with our fathers or our parents or whatever, might be broken or less than perfect, sometimes we attribute the things that we experience here on a horizontal level to that which we, you know, want on a vertical level. In other words, your view of God will determine your relationship with God. Did you catch that, everybody? So if you see, if you see God the wrong way, if you see him like this here, it's going to affect this there. And so I think it's really important that God be allowed the opportunity to kind of change your thinking, get you to see through a different windshield and not a rearview mirror, that God has something great for you in relationship with him if you can see him the right way. But God the Father and God the Son had a great relationship, and God loved his son. In fact, in your notes, Matthew 3, 17, look at, look at an event where God the Father shows up, and he shows Jesus just how he feels about him. In fact, he says, a voice from heaven came saying this, this is my beloved son. In other words, he loved his son in whom he is well what? He's well pleased. Their relationship was totally awesome. It was better than Tom and Eddie. It was better than any relationship that you or I could have. It has been there since the beginning of time. So I'm going to give you three truths about Jesus the son. Number one, and I'm doing all this kind of background because I want you to appreciate what Jesus did for you, but I also want you to understand what the father relationship with the son was like because it's going to make you connect with God better when you see the son and the father's relationship. I hope that makes sense. So three truths about the son. The first one was he was given. The son was given. In Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, a prophetic scripture from a prophet, a major prophet. This was hundreds of years before Jesus died, which is one of the reasons I'm a follower of Christ is because things were foretold and then they actually came to be. 
There are hundreds of fulfilled prophecies. If, you will, if you'll stick your nose into the scriptures, look at them for yourself objectively, and not let negative past or experiences or other people's opinions get in the way, you'll see, wow, like that was said here, and it happened here. That's one of the reasons I love my Savior. Isaiah 9, 6 says, For unto us a child is born, and unto us what? A son is given. John chapter 3, verse 16, the most famous scripture in all the Bible. Uh, you see it at every football game, okay? John 3, 16 says, God loved the world so much. Everybody say so much. That's a lot. Like, how much do you love me, Daddy? Like, so much. God loved the world so much that he what? He gave. He gave his one and only son. He, gave, he only had one son. If he had maybe 25 sons, maybe it wouldn't have been that big a deal, but... But he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him may not be lost but have eternal life. Now, sometimes when we look at Jesus, we think he's the nice guy and God the Father's the meanie. In other words, if you've been in Sunday school, you've been to church, or you heard any stories about Jesus, you're like, okay, he was the uh, turn-the-other-cheek guy. He was the get down and wash people's feet. Ew. Uh, he was, you know, this, this great servant kind of leader and, and just really kind. But God, the Father, I mean, he's like Zeus. He's in heaven, and he is just waiting for you to bust you, bust your chops, hit you with the lightning bolt from heaven. God, the Father's a meaning. Again, that view of God will determine your relationship with God. But nothing could be further from the truth. This is not in your notes, but... For those of you who like extra verses, 1 John 3, 1 says this. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. God sees you as his kids, and he loves his kids. He adores his kids. Sometimes I like to use my, my, my holy imagination. I, like, I, I believe that... Uh, that in order to stay in right standing with God and have a good relationship with God, you have to have a certain and retain a certain innocence about you. Like God loves childlike faith. He, in fact, there's a lot of scripture that refers to this childlikeness that be retained as we grow in our faith. And so I like to use my holy imagination and I like to imagine what must the father and son's relationship been like all those millennia, all those eons of time. What would it, what would it like? Did they ever go fishing together is what I used to think. No, probably not. You know, did they, you know, did they ever like, you know, go out and, you know, throw a baseball around? Probably not. But maybe, maybe they, you know, maybe they play catch with the stars. You know, when you, you, some of you with your science background, you know that when a, when a star has fallen, it's, it's supposedly that that happened thousands and thousands of years ago. The, the light went out and we're just seeing it now. Maybe that was God saying, hey, hey, Jesus, catch, you know, and Jesus missed it and it fell. I don't know, just... Throwing that out there, just tossing that, just kind of tossing that one out there, you know. Maybe we're standing, you know when you went to school when you were a kid and you had science projects, remember volcanoes with the, you blow up toothpaste and stuff and peanut butter or whatever you had in there, you remember that one, right? Science project. Maybe we're standing on Jesus' science project. Like maybe God's like, yeah, I want you to make a model of the solar system. I want you to put this thing, in. Like maybe we're that model. I don't know. I don't, all I know is that God the Father and the Son, they had an amazing relationship, and it preexisted us. And I think that there was things that they did when they were together, you know, and, and maybe God, you know, you know Jesus, go ahead, go ahead. And, you know, God, you know, God's talking to his son, and Jesus, like, puts his finger in the ground on the earth, and there's a, there's, there's a stream. And then God comes over here, and he puts his finger in the ground, and it's like a big river. 
No, go ahead, go ahead, do that. And Jesus like, watch this stuff. You know how you want to show your parent how good you are at certain things? Maybe Jesus, like, you know, put some dirt together and made a hill. And then God put some dirt together and made the Himalayas. <laughs> Jesus made, like, hey, I want to create something because he has, he's spoken, things came to be. And he created a goldfish. God comes over here and goes, <laughs> and he makes a blue whale. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. But I, I just think that this relationship is what I'm trying to get you to see. It was there. And the reason I tell you that is because how much love must it have taken for the father to do what he did for us by giving his son? Like, wow. I go through that, the, the holy imaginations, because I don't think sometimes we personalize what happened with God the Father with his son. I'm fortunate to have a great relationship with my kids. I have four children. I have three girls, and I have a son. And my three girls, I, I call all my girls the same kind of nickname. I call all of them Angel. So if one of them's in the room, hey, Angel, come here, come here, come here, Angel. And, and I just adore them all, like literally adore all of my girls. Uh, my oldest girl is getting married in a couple months if I let her. I was scrolling through my contact list, and her fiance's, you know, name came up, and then, and then I went to her name, and I was kind of having like a little moment with my iPhone, <laughs> and I was thinking, I'm never changing her last name for my iPhone, and I'm not going to tell him. <laughs> it's a little confession. I had to get that out there. And so, so I love my girls, but, but my son is like my best friend. My son and I spend a lot of time together. My son and I talk all the time. My son and I text all the time. We have this little walkie-talkie app. We leave messages all the time. We spend a lot of time together. You know, we, we work out together. Uh, we eat together. I pay for it a lot. <laughs> all of the things that he eats, I pay for that. You know what I mean? Uh, I, I'm, I'm very, I'm very uh, proud of my son. You know, in fact, I feel like God the Father. I feel like this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And I say that because not everybody can say that, and I understand that, and I, and I appreciate that. I know there's stories behind that, but I say that because as a father to a son, if, if somebody came to me and said, I have an idea for you, Pastor Derek. This is how you can save hundreds of people, but it's going to require you give your son up. I would say, you're out of your mind. That's not going to happen because I love my son, and I'm well pleased with my son. And I'm not going to do that for you. But God, his love was so great. My sin was great. His love was greater. He gave his son for me. And sometimes I don't think we think about that. Number two, that leads me to the next point, And this is a big contrast, but it sets it up. Is that he was killed. Jesus the son, he was killed. A lot of times we talk about Jesus dying on the cross. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. It's almost like a trivial statement, a little cavalierness to it, like, is that a word, cavalierness? But I'm, I can make up words because I'm a speaker. I'm a speaker. Just a little bit of cavalierness. My father used to make up words, historicity and things like that. But anyway, it's just funny. But, but, but he, he, I don't think we realize it's just this phrase. It's not some romantic phrase. He was slaughtered. His son was slaughtered. He was killed. He was murdered. He was murdered. The Bible talks about this. Matthew 16, 21, it says, From that time Jesus began to show to his disciples, reveal this stuff, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. And look what it says, everybody. And be what? And be killed. Killed. And be raised the third day. 
often we focus on Jesus dying, but we don't focus on the Father giving his son to be killed, to be killed. I remember years ago, many years ago with my son, I'm going to use a lot of illustrations because this is a story about his son, but I remember years ago, about 20 plus years ago, my son was in Alabama and he was running down the walkway to see his grandparents and as he's running, he falls, trips and falls and he hits his forehead on the brick stairs, the front entryway of the stairs and he split open his skull. And I don't mean to be overly graphic, but I, but I, but I do. And he was going to be okay in the end, so we'll skip to that, but I mean, it was traumatic, you know. We were first-time parents. This was probably one of the most serious things that happened, other than me dropping him in the tub, uh, <laughs> washing him up, <laughs> trying to save time. Um, and so we ended up going to the hospital, and we get to the emergency room, and we get to the emergency room, and nobody is attending uh, to my son. And I'm a nice guy for about five minutes. And so nobody's attending to my son. He's crying. He's screaming. He's totally upset. It's totally traumatic. So I start... I start, you know, using my skills. And uh, I need some help, and I need a doctor, and I need somebody to attend to my son. So, so finally the doctor comes over, and, and, he, and he says, we're, we're going to take your son now, but you're going to need to stay behind uh, while we go in with him into this room. And in my head I was thinking, um, There's, that's not going to happen. And I said that in my head, and just as I was saying that in my head, my wife right beside me, and if you know her, you know how she is, she said, yeah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> We're going in there. And she's like a human toothpick. She's really small, and she, but she will bow up, and she will poke some people's eyes out. And so we go into this room, and we get in this room, and, of course, my son begins to calm down a little bit and because we're with him, so, and things were semi-content. But then all of a sudden, the atmosphere changed as these doctors bring in a straitjacket. And I, I didn't know anything about that. And I was a young parent. I was very young, and... and uh, they proceed to put him inside the straitjacket. And my son's looking at me like, what is going on? I'm like, it's going to be okay, son. It's going to be okay. And I'm trying to comfort him. I just, you just keep your eyes on daddy. You just keep looking at me. And um, it's getting tighter and tighter and tighter. And they just, all of a sudden, they just make this really tight thing. And they just completely compress him inside this. Can't even touch any part of his body except his face. And he's held down, multiple doctors. And they're trying to get my wife and I to step back. And, and we wouldn't. And so... All of a sudden, they pull out this needle. And, of course, the story over 20-something years gets bigger, but the needle was about this long. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> needle, I needed a little levity, but the needle was very long, and there was this super long. And, and the needle wasn't even to do the work. It was just to cleanse the wound. So how do you have to get hurt more to cleanse something? And so he proceeds to scream at another level, another decibel level. And it was the most blood-curdling scream. I still remember it to this day, 21 years later. And... And as they're pushing this needle into his head, I'm, not, I'm saying, son, just keep your eyes on daddy. It's going to be okay. Keep your eyes on daddy. And he's looking at me as if to say, are you going to allow this to happen to me, daddy? Why are you allowing this to happen? And in my head, I knew, like, you're going to have to suffer. It's essential that you suffer for what's necessary. And then they proceed to stitch him up, and it was 20 minutes of the most horrific time I can remember as a parent. And I remember, you know, just having his eyes looking at me, and I remember leaving and leaving the room and leaving the hospital. And I'm just going to say as a parent, something broke in me. I was messed up after that a little bit, like, because I was helpless to do anything about what needed to take place as a father. 
And in the middle of that, God spoke to me and said, son, now you know just a little bit of what it would be like for me to give my son to suffer and be killed. See, I think we minimize and marginalize what God the Father did for us 2,000 years ago, not when Jesus died, but when the Father gave his son to be killed. Are you with me, everybody? Something about having a son made me appreciate what having a son must have been like for God. I wrote this in my notes. I think the more we comprehend what happened on the cross and the more we also comprehend the sacrifice of the Father, the more we can experience the vast love that God has for us as his children. It changes your relationship when you, when, you, when you understand both sides. Jesus was talking to his disciples about this three different times before he was killed. He told them he's going to be killed. That would be like Martin Luther, a famous leader, around his leaders saying, Hey, guys, I got a tip. When I go to Memphis, I'm gonna, I, I got a tip. Somebody's going to try to kill me. What would the leaders do? They'd say, Then don't go. Stop. Hold up. If John F. Kennedy got a tip that he was going to be killed in Dallas on the day of his assassination, and he tells us, hey, guys, I heard, I heard something about this, they would say, don't go. But Jesus was telling his followers over and over again, I'm going to suffer and be killed, and they didn't get it. And I don't think sometimes we get it. Did I have to have a son suffer before I get it? Do you have to suffer personally before you get it? I think God the Father in heaven is saying, I need you to get it. I'm telling you these things. Listen to me. I hope you understand. And sometimes I don't think we do. Last week when we were talking about just kind of what Jesus did for us as a sacrificial lamb, uh, there was a lot of comments about that. And I think there's, we, we sometimes look at our sin and we know Jesus paid for my sin. Jesus paid for my sin. It's just like Jesus died on the cross. It's just this trivial thing we say, cavalierness. And, and people came up to me and said, there was an analogy I used, and I can't tell you the whole one because of time, but, but basically sometimes we look at our sin like getting a ticket on the highway from a cop. And, and, and then we find somebody to, that we can talk to to maybe make the ticket go away. Like dismiss the charge. Maybe you're, you're, you're hooked up. and you got somebody that can do that for you. That's great. But you got to understand something. Jesus didn't dismiss the ticket. He didn't just make it go away. There was a price, a penalty for that offense. It was paid for by Jesus. Your sin was paid for. And it was paid for because in your case, someone had to be killed. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is Jesus Christ. So, so I don't think we get it sometimes. So I'm going to teach you a big word. Everybody say big word. Big word. So you're going to walk out of here on Easter learning a big word, and you probably never use it again. You probably never have in your life before. But look at 1 John 2, 1 and 2 in your notes. 1 John 2, 1 through 2. It says, my little children. This is God the Father talking about us. These things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we've got this guy. We have this lawyer, this advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the, everybody say it out loud, propitiation. Like, could you say it first, Pastor? Because we don't know how to say that word. He is the propitiation of our sin. And not our sins only, but for the sins of the entire world. 1 John 4.10 says, in this is love. In this, what he's going to do for us is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the, what? Propitiation for our sins. So before I tell you what that word propitiation means, I'm going to tell you another word that I think we think it means. And that word is called expiation. 
Okay, now expiation is basically looking at sin from the sinner's perspective. Expiation basically says sin has been cleansed, it has been removed, it has been expelled, it's been dismissed. Expiation says, thank you for making that sin go away. But propitiation is different. Put up that word propitiation. Propitiation says that your sin is from God's perspective, God's standard. Propitiation means that God's wrath has been completely satisfied and that justice has been completely served. So basically what this means is it wasn't just, it wasn't just removed or dismissed. It was, there was a price, and the price was, had, a, had, a, had a payment to it, and that was Jesus. But there's something else. Justice had to be served. When somebody does something wrong to you, you, you want to see payment for that. You want to see recompense for that. And so Jesus made a way for that to be satisfied, justice, because God is just. Let me try to give you an illustration for this. First, you guys probably know if you're a Bible thumper in any way or shape or form, but there's this, there's this chapter in Romans 12, and it says, it says Jesus tells us basically that God will repay. He will avenge. Vengeance is mine. You ever heard that phrase, vengeance is mine? That's talking about God. And so I used to think, what does that mean? What does that mean? This, this is what it's talking about, propitiation. Vengeance, God's vengeance, God's full wrath was for sin, the penalty of sin is going to be taken care of. And so if I said, this, this would be like hard maybe to swallow this illustration, but, gra- but very clear. If you had a family member, and maybe this has happened to you, so please, I don't mean to be insensitive. But if you had a family member, somebody really close to you who was murdered. I know people, a family member who were murdered. And then somebody was found guilty. But then somebody else came in and said, I'll take their punishment. I'll go to jail for life. I'll go on death row for them. That wouldn't satisfy your anger. That wouldn't fulfill justice for you because somebody else was taking the place of that sin. Is everybody with me? You wouldn't feel like it was just, right? But if you had a family member who was murdered and evidence surfaced after later and knew you found there was DNA to support it, there was video that showed the person in the act, there were eyewitnesses, it was conclusive that there was a person that could absolutely 100% with assurance be held responsible for the murder of your family member, and they went to trial, and they were found guilty, and they were charged as guilty, and there was going to be a punishment for that. Would that satisfy your anger? Would that fulfill, you know, your, would that fulfill justice? The answer is yes, it would. So expiation doesn't do that, but propitiation does. Listen. Here's what happens. Because the point is, Jesus took our punishment, and yes, we were pardoned, but he didn't just do that. He also took on our sin. I hope you get this. I hope you can understand this. Because if he didn't take on our sin, we would have, he would, um, an innocent man would have been killed. He would have been murdered. There's a song by Chris Tomlin that says, He became sin who knew no sin, broken and poured out. All for love. And it's taken from 2 Corinthians 5, 21, which is in your notes. It says this. For he made him, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, look at this, to be sin for us. Does everybody see that? Yes or no? So that we might become the righteousness of God. So the sin that was upon you, 
Now it's placed upon you. You don't have to walk with a sinful nature anymore. You don't have to live with a sinful nature. You have a choice now in Christ to move forward, not living as a sinful person anymore. You don't have a default nature. You don't have a deceitful heart. You can choose righteousness the rest of your life because the sin that was upon you that required a payment was put upon Jesus. He didn't just take your punishment. He took your sin upon himself. The reason God's wrath and God's justice has been completely served is because God removed the sin from you and put it on his son. And so the path of payment for you, you are all on a path, and and ultimately we're going to have to give an account of our life before God. But for those who called upon the name of the Lord, they are saved from the coming wrath and judgment of God because it was put on Jesus who was killed for our sin. Can I have an amen? That's good stuff. Amen. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, it says, And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. See, God put all of that justice, all of that wrath for what was wrong upon his son for us. It's amazing. You know, I don't get, I don't think sometimes we realize what God the Father did. There's a true story, I never knew this, about a man named John Griffin in the 1920s, 1930s, I think it was 1937 to be exact, and he was a bridge conductor and, uh, in, on the Memphis, excuse me, on the Mississippi River. And so what he was responsible for was opening a bridge every day for, for boats to come underneath and trains to come across. Everybody tracking with me. And he had a son, an eight-year-old boy, who was the apple of his eye, and they were very, very close. And one day, the son asked if he could go to work with his father, and maybe they have a picnic lunch or something like that. And the father said, okay. So he took his son, and uh, while they were working, and he was showing him around, and then eventually decided to come off the bridge, climb way down to the bottom, down by the river, and have lunch. And they did have lunch by the river. And all of a sudden, the father is like caught up in the day with his son. He looks at his watch, and he realizes that the Memphis Bell train is en route to the bridge, and it's actually going to be there in three minutes. He has very limited time to respond and to, and to get to his post. And so he tells his son, son, I need you to wait here. I'm going to go climb the bridge. I'm going to get to my spot. i got to get this train across. And he leaves. And, of course, the river's loud, and the train's coming, and there's a lot of noise. And what he doesn't realize is his son, his 8-year-old boy, is following behind him, shortly behind him. And the father gets to the top, and he's preparing to pull the lever to pull the bridge down. What he doesn't realize is his son has climbed up, and just before where the bridge comes down, he has fallen into the gears and the mechanics of that bridge. And he's gotten his legs stuck in there, and he cannot get out. And he's screaming, but the father initially can't hear him, but he starts looking for his son, and he realizes his son's not there, and he sees the train is coming. And as you can tell, there's a decision and a choice that's going to need to be made. Do I pull the lever and save 300 innocent lives that don't know what's happening? Or do I go and save my son and let 300 people go to their peril? And he couldn't figure out a way to save his son. He couldn't figure out a way to save the people. There was something had to be done. And ultimately, he pulled that lever, and his son was crushed. His son was killed for those 300 people. And as they went by... The story is told that John Griffin was looking into the window of the train and he could see people reading their newspapers, drinking coffee, sipping tea, husband and wife chatting, boyfriend, girlfriend nipping at each other's earlobes. And as, as they're going by, not even a clue of what had just happened. And rage came over him, just passion came over him. He began to scream out, don't you realize what I just did for you? 
You'd be dead if it wasn't for me. You'd, you'd, you would have died if it wasn't for me. My son just died for you. And he's screaming that at them. They have no idea as they're going by in their indifference and disconnect. And I, I think that's very true of how it is. I think sometimes maybe with God the Father towards us, we just keep going through our lives, going through our emotions, going through maybe even sometimes our religious routines, but we're not connecting with what God the Father did for us when he allowed his son to be given and he allowed his son to be killed so you and I do not have to face the wrath to come and we could be saved because of Jesus Christ. Can I have an amen? We need to remember that. Amen. Amen. It's an important point. He was given and he was killed. Number three, last point. Everybody say last point. He was raised. He was raised from the dead. Praise God. He is risen. He is risen indeed. This particular reality is the most important part of our faith. The verification of our faith is that Jesus actually came back to life. There are so many texts to support this. In John 21, 14, I don't think it's in your worship guides, but it'll be on the screen. John 21, 14 says, This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. John 5, 21 says, Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to those he wants to. Acts 5.30 says, you killed Jesus by hanging him on the cross, but God, the God of our ancestors, raises Jesus up from the dead, whom you murdered. Jesus and was, without a doubt, in my mind, raised from the dead. The, the, the Bible is not just an inspired book, an errant book, an authoritative book, but it is also a historical record. There was 40 days when Jesus appeared after he, after he came up from the grave. 40 days, he, he, he just stayed on earth before he ascended into heaven. 500 witnesses, eyewitnesses saw him at one time. He revealed himself, his, his wounds to his followers as he, in his resurrected state, would walk through walls. Jesus was emphatically uh, revealing that he was the Son of God. And he was the resurrected Savior and Lord. And, and, and I follow Jesus as a, today because, uh, because he came back to life. He did what he said he was going to do. The good news is that he was raised. But the greater news is because he was raised, you can be raised also. Can I have an amen? 1 Corinthians 6.14 says, By the power of God, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead. And he will raise us also. 1 Corinthians 15, 52, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. This will be the second coming of Jesus. Those of you who don't see death, will, hopefully that happens for us. We'll be raised if he comes back. But if we die, we'll be raised again. The dead will be raised imperishable. That means you will receive a resurrected body. That means, ladies, you'll look in the mirror and you'll always like what you see. How much, how, ladies, would that be good? It's like, you'll be like, man, I look good. You know, guys, you will have a six-pack on your abs, not in your hands. You can have Hagen dust, no caloric effect whatsoever, a resurrected body. Like, that's incredible. That's what this is talking about right here. And, and we'll be changed. 2 Corinthians 4, 14 says, Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us to himself. As a young man, when I heard the story and started to understand and grasp that there was a guy who, who died, and then he came back from the dead, and he gave convincing proofs that he did that, and he said, If you believe in me, you can come back from the dead. I wanted in on that. I didn't need a bunch of theology. I didn't need a bunch of ABCD. I didn't need apologetics. 
Either that is true or not. Our faith is based on an event. A man came back from the dead. And if you put your faith in that, you can come back from the dead one day too. I don't know about you, but I know one day I'm going to die. The Bible says that. It's pointed unto every man to die. And then the judgment. I want to face that judgment, and I want to have a ticket. And the ticket is Jesus. I want to be able to pass through that line, knowing that I'm in good standing with God himself. I don't know if you're in on that. Are you in on that? Amen. I hope you are. But God made it really simple for you to be in on that. I mean, like crazy simple. In fact, in Romans 10, 9, this is an amazing scripture. It says this. There's this two-letter word that is one of the most powerful words there is in the English language. It says, if you declare with your mouth, if you say something with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe it in your heart, there's this hand-glove relationship between what you say with your mouth and what you believe in your heart, that God did raise Jesus from the dead. What's it say? You will be saved. In other words, when you die, you can live. Jesus lived to die so that when we die, we could live with him forever. That's what happened. And because of Jesus, if we'll say with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus raised him from the dead, you and I can live with him forever. That's what that's saying there. You might not realize how it's all connected to the Son. It's all connected to the Son. I'll give you this final story. This is, a, this is one that always hit me very hard, but there, there was a father and son relationship. They both loved art. And this particular father was very wealthy, and he had Picassos and Rembrandts and Raphaels and all these great pictures, and they loved art. And one day the son grew, and he went off to the Vietnam War. And in war, he was killed in action, regrettably killed in action. And at the funeral, the, the father, you know, totally grieving or whatever, it was just really, really sad for him, really hard for him because he loved his son so much. But after the funeral, a couple so soldiers showed up at the front door, knocking on the door. The father went to the door and they said, sir, you don't know us, but, but your son in battle saved our lives. We'd be dead today if it wasn't for him. He saved us. And he talked about you, how much he loved you. And he talked about the art that you shared and your love for art. And he says, and I'm not an artist, but, but, I, but I painted a picture, a portrait of your son in action. And I'd like to give you that. The father just wept and got extremely emotional. He was, it was his favorite gift that he'd ever received. He took this picture in and, and he put it over the mantle in his house. And from that point forward, when anybody ever came over, he'd always take them to that room and he'd point everybody to the picture of the son. You got to see my son. You got you to you you look to my son. You got to see my son. It was his favorite piece. One day the father died as well. And everything that he had went to auction his whole estate, all his artwork, because he was a wealthy man and because of the art that he had, people came from all around the world to see these pictures and perhaps buy them. They were all motivated by greed and motivated by their kind of lust for the artwork. And, and the auctioneer got up in front of all the people and he, he said there was a stipulation written within the estate of this man, the father, that the first picture that had to go for auction was the portrait of the son. And nobody wanted the picture of the son because it wasn't really great wasn't really special, but it was special to him. The auctioneer got up and said, I'm going to start at $100. Does anybody here want to make a bid for $100 for the portrait of the son? And it was quiet. And there was some snickering in the back, and there was some complaining, and he said it again three times, four times, five times. The auctioneer started to get upset and said, it's, here's the thing, everybody, until this goes, we cannot continue the auction. 
it's been really, really clear. I have to follow the instruction of the estate. And finally from the back, somebody in the back said, I'll take it. I don't have a lot of money. In fact, this is all the money I have. I'll buy it. And he was the gardener of the father. He says, I love this man. And so because I love this man, I want, I want the son. And so he took it. The auctioneer was very, very grateful. And everybody was really anxious because now the auction could continue. And he got up to the microphone and he said, the auctioneer said, this concludes today's auction. What was stipulated inside the will is that whoever gets the picture and the portrait of the son gets the estate and all the belongings, all the other pictures. When you get the son, you get everything. Would you bow your heads? I want to pray for you. You might be here today, and you might even be listening online, and you've never gotten the son. You've never seen the son in the light of a father who gave his son, who allowed his son to be killed, but then because he's a good, good father, he raised his son from the dead. Why? So that you could have life eternally with him. And if you're here today, and you have not experienced and encountered the relationship that he has for you. You're not confident that you have that eternal connection and you want to make sure you do. Sir, man, boy, or girl, that's what this is all about. That's what life is all about. This is the biggest decision, in my opinion, that you could make. And it's simple. Romans 10, 9. If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised his son from the dead, you can be saved. And so without any looking around, every head bowed and every eye closed. I'm not going to call anybody down front, but I am going to ask you to make a courageous thing. Do a courageous thing. I'm just going to ask you to say yes to God. I want that. I want you to pray for me, Pastor, and I'm going to lead you in a prayer. But I want you to raise your hand right now and say, Pastor, would you pray for me? I want to be certain of that. Good night. Don't miss it. Thank you. Thank you. Hands all over the room. Don't miss it. Be courageous. God loves you. He doesn't embarrass you. God bless you. God bless you. That's so awesome. Yes, sir the front row over here. That's good. There's two over there. There's one there. There's four right there. Five, six. Thank you, sir. Anybody else I'm missing in the back? I don't know. Thank you, sir, over there. That's awesome. God bless you. You can put your hands down. It's so great. I'm so proud of you. It's such an important thing. Church, would you pray this prayer with them? And those that raise your hand, would you pray this prayer? And I'm just leading you in what the Bible says. Just say, Jesus. Come on, everybody. Say, Jesus. I invite you into my life today of my own free will. I thank you that you gave your life for me. Father, I thank you that you gave your son for me. That you were, you were killed so I could be saved. And you rose again so when I die, I could rise again one day. Save me today in Jesus' name. Father, for every person who prayed that prayer, I pray that you would seal that on their heart, seal that on their conscience, and seal it in heavenly realms. Their name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, never to be taken away, God. This is the best day of their life. This is the best Easter they ever had. This is why Jesus did what he did and why we celebrate what we celebrate. He is risen. He is risen indeed, and so are we in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. Come on, let's give the Lord a big hand clap. God bless you, and happy Easter, everybody. Happy Easter.